Okay. I want you to get comfortable, but not too comfortable. Because I have important things to tell you, and I need your attention. Together, we are embarking on a year-long project to bring forward the history of Hope Unitarian Church. Fifty years ago, in 1968, a group of families gathered at Key Elementary and signed the charter that is back at the back of the sanctuary. You know, it was a heady, exciting time, just on the brink of starting something new. And at the time, they called their South Tulsa Project Second Unitarian Church. History is not a set story. It's never a finalized narrative. Rather, it evolves as each individual learns it. And history changes as people ask different questions of the past. History broadens as the concerns of each generation shine a light upon humans and nature uh, nature's actions. So throughout this semi-centennial 50th year, I propose we use a clear eye focused by our present-day concerns to explore our church history. So those of you who were here at 10 o'clock, you heard a fabulous presentation um, by Steve Witt about the geology of the hill. Because I wanted us to think about this hill's been here long before 1968. So I'm trying to tie together the two hours with pieces of Hope's history, local, local and global. So every month or so, we'll walk through time until we reach, pull your phones out and calendars, until we reach October 6th, when we're going to have a blowout series of celebrations and dinners and who knows what all we're going to do. Mark your calendars, October 6th, 7th. Fifth, all those, that whole weekend. I take to heart the litany of gratitude that we say every Sunday. We'll say it later. We build on foundations we did not lay. And that's inspired by the book of Deuteronomy and then adapted and expanded by a Unitarian Universalist minister, Peter Rabel. So in the original biblical text, the people of Israel are on the plains of Moab just at the entrance to their promised land of Canaan. They too are embarking on a new adventure and a new chapter in their lives. They've been freed from slavery, from wandering in the wilderness. Moses has just brought down ethical laws of the Ten Commandments. So that passage that we repeat documents the reminder for Israel to always return and be grateful for what resides at the core of their community. And in their case... Their call is faithfulness to a single God of Israel. In our case, the call is faithfulness to a community of seekers and to love. 
We build on foundations we did not lay. We warm ourselves by fires we did not light. We sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. We drink from wells we did not dig. We profit from persons we did not know. We are ever bound in community. These powerful words are a prayer to history. When we speak them every single Sunday, we are calling ourselves back to our values. The words remind us we never exist alone. They disrupt society's false message we can be self-made. They disrupt the notion we are solo or disconnected. And they reorient us to the interdependent web of life, which is what prayer does. Prayer reorients us. So on Sundays, we only read half of what Peter Rabel wrote because he goes on to name what a vibrant community can then accomplish, this grateful people who recognize they come from a past. The whole litany can serve as our guide for digging around in our own history. Because we'll be looking for where we built community and where we missed the mark. Let me read the rest of it. So backing up one sentence, we are ever bound in community. May it always be so. This is as it should be. Together, we are more than any one person could be. Together, we can build across generations. Together, we can renew our hope and faith in life that is yet to unfold. Together, we can heed the call to a ministry of care and justice. We are ever bound in community. May it be so. So it might be tempting to start in 1968 for our look back together. And I let people know that we certainly will look at that pivotal year in depth in February. We'll get groovy and far out. But first, we will take to heart the command that we build across generations. We must start before 1968, long before 1968, to grasp fully how we build on foundations we did not lay. We are a religious tradition not afraid of history. It is our theological move, just by having Steve Witt present the geology, it is our theological move to be in awe and remain curious about what geologists and astrophysicists agree began over 13 billion years ago. Some religious literalists refuse to look beyond a narrow biblical timeline, ignoring geology, evolutionary biology, the wisdom of the sciences. We don't shy away from the Big Bang, from dinosaurs, from science, or from history. Our hill and our bodies are made from stardust. I want us to look back in this hour 
at two different points in time before our founding. I'll be dealing today with what is really a tiny blip on the clock of cosmological and geological time. We're going to look at two key moments in human history that impact us directly. I gave you a heads up. First is the landmark anniversary, besides our 50th. It is the 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torda. You heard its final paragraph as our first reading. I want to alert you to this extraordinary moment in history. The ideas contained in the proclamation are as solid a foundation for us as the outcropping of rocks we sit atop. The edict is at the core of our religious beliefs, and I'll come back to it. Because the second landmark I want to talk about is recorded in our abstract title with the gracious help of Julia Harris and Marcia Schaefer and Fred Podor, we found this abstract. This thick document is a condensed history of the chain of ownership of our hill dating back to statehood, back into the 1800s. And it tells not only how our church ended up here, but is a doorway into critical pieces of history about our nation, about our state, about our city, about ourselves. And it begins with a one-month-old baby boy, William Prince. Willie Prince was born November 1899 to Andy and Lucy Prince in Redbird, Indian Territory. Simply by asking deeper questions about these very basic facts from the abstract's first pages serve as a springboard for telling our church's history with more depth and integrity. Here's why this particular history matters. As our nation debates immigration, race, gender equality, religious rights, economic parity, we need to know the roots of these arguments in our own history. The connections are there. We need to understand how our church profits from persons we did not know. For example, baby Willie Smith is born in Indian Territory. Oklahoma is not yet a state. And his birth is directly linked to the dreadful forced migration of the Muscogee Creeks from Alabama. So in 1832, a treaty gives all creek land in Alabama to the United States. In that same treaty, creeks are made individual landowners for the first time in their tribe's history. These treaties are mentioned in our abstract and serve as its foundation for the legality of it. So this forced cultural change from a communal understanding of the earth, for the beauty of the earth, to individual ownership of land, 
and this is an understatement, is a divisive move. It naturally leads to rebellions and wars, and ultimately, a captured group of rebel Creeks are sent 800 miles away to Indian Territory here in present-day Oklahoma. After 2,500 of these enemy creeks have been sent west, the United States decides to open up even more land in Alabama for white, civilized settlement. They remove the remaining 20,000 creeks from Alabama. These First Nations people are driven from their homes with only what they can carry. They walk in chains to Montgomery or Mobile, They are forced to board steamboats to travel further west. Difficult travel, unsanitary conditions, harsh weather result in thousands of deaths on what is known as the Creek Trail of Tears. This Trail of Tears is a perverse version of the Israelites marching to Canaan. Strings of phony and broken treaties become an impossible set of laws, an upside-down Ten Commandments guiding their march. Our one-month-old Willie Prince comes from this complicated, painful history. He's listed as a Creek freedman. Along with the Creeks are Creek freedmen, emancipated African-American, Americans who've been slaves of tribal members. And many freedmen are of mixed ancestry, uh, a mix of African and First Nation. And the town of Redbird, where Willie's parents, Andy and Lucy Prince, come from, is about 25 miles south and east of Hope. Redbird is one of two dozen all-black settlements that are part of the land run of 1889. These towns are born out of perpetuating segregation and color lines at the founding of our state. Willie Prince dies just two after turning two years old. His parents inherit his allotment and then they sell it to Bradley Realty Bank and Trust for $500 merely three years later. And the abstract reveals oil and gas interests moving in a mere six years after Willie's death. I hope all your synapses are firing with questions about this history. Why did this two-year-old, likely dark-skinned, mixed-race baby not survive. What factors are behind his parents selling this land? The history of our state is the history of how quickly white businessmen get their hands on these allotments, often through despicable, violent means. Has anyone read recently the book Killers of the Flower Moon? If you have not, you must. 
Killers of the Flower Moon. Write it down. It documents the deliberate intermarrying, bombing, poisoning, shooting, to wipe out whole Osage families. So just a few miles north of here, these coordinated killings deliver land rights out of the hands of the tribe. When we don't know the recent history, and I say recent, we're only talking about things that happened a hundred years ago. When we don't know the recent history of our hill, we don't fully understand how to be hospitable to a First Nations person or a black person who drives up our hill. They likely know this history that we would rather ignore or conveniently forget. And as they're driving up, they're seeing something different than perhaps what we're seeing. This history could drive our commitment to how we care and share this gorgeous piece of rock. So I haven't had time to delve deeply into the abstract. And I want to invite those with inclinations to follow historical threads to help with the detective work. Because when we gather in October this year to celebrate our 50th anniversary publicly, what if we're able to include some of these stories and even living descendants? Part of white supremacy is the erasure of history. If we only tell the triumphal part of our past, then we don't tell the full range of emotions and possibilities to propel us into the future. Okay, let's take a seventh inning stretch. Take a deep breath. I need your hearts and minds for the next section. And I promise you it's more uplifting. Why does Founding Hope Church matter? Oh, it does greatly. This brings me back to the 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torda. We are a church family firmly planted in the tradition of religious freedom. It matters that 50 years ago a community formed to uphold this freedom for all willing to come. The very bedrock of our Unitarian tradition is the free practice of religion first articulated in the edict. If people ask you when Unitarianism started, January 1568 is as close to a solid inception date as we have. The text is a doctrine of radical tolerance of religious diversity and a bold way forward in the context of a blood and fire soaked reformation. The 16th century is a laboratory for religious reformation in Europe. The swirl of ideas spawns Lutheran, Anglican, and Reformed variations of Christianity. But our Unitarian and Universalist traditions find closer affinity to, yes, 
the even more radical left-leaning reformers who are unsatisfied with even the novel doctrines. They press for even further changes in theology and practice and authority. So in Transylvania, now Romania, central Romania, these radical reformers find traction. The reigning monarch, John Sigismund, takes reform even further. He supports a series of theological debates during the 1560s. And he has close at hand, supporting this, George Biandrata, a name to remember, George Biandrata, who follows the anti-Trinitarian, which is why we say Unitarian, so much easier, anti-Trinitarian writings of Michael Servetus. He's a martyr burned at the stake for his Unitarian beliefs and other Italian theologians. So with Biandrata and Servetus' influence, King Sigismund welcomes another radical reformer, Ferenc, or Francis David. Right there. You likely know of Francis David because of this aphorism attributed to him. We need not think alike to love alike. So King Sigismund asked Francis David to be his court preacher. So after this decade of theological debate and all the Unitarian influences, King Sigismund himself converts to Unitarianism, making him the only Unitarian monarch in world history. And he holds the Diet of Torda. Diet here does not mean a food plan, but means an assembly. This assembly in the town of Torda concludes its theological explorations on January 13th. 1568. And they famously issue that statement of religious tolerance, which you heard. In every place the preacher shall preach and explain the gospel, each according to his understanding of it. And the congregation, and if the congregation like it, well. And if not, no one shall compel them, for their souls would not be satisfied. This edict of Torda, this edict of tolerance, is the first of its kind in the Western world. It allows preachers to voice their beliefs freely, and it permits members of the congregation to disagree, not only with each other, but with the preacher as well. The decree doesn't put a complete end to discrimination, because it's really of its time. And it grants official status only to the Catholic, Lutheran, and Calvinist clergymen. But the Unitarian, Orthodox, Armenian, Jewish, and Muslim believers, this is the Ottoman Empire at the moment, could also practice freely their religion. And although King John dies a decade after this declaration, 
his influence on the freedom of thought and belief is alive and well today. It is from this decree that we establish our belief in a congregation of free thinkers with different theologies, philosophies, and experiences. It is out of this edict we come together to celebrate and examine the mysteries and questions of life. It is how Yadni, Yadni and I can thank you for the times you have let us know how you feel about our preaching. Thank you very much. Through the Edict of Torda, we understand our commitment to faith, unfettered by governments or empires. That includes Congress, presidents. We understand a free pulpit and a free pew are necessities for free religious communities. Even our stirrings of our commitment to resist authoritarianism as a religious practice are signaled in the edict. Honoring Hope Unitarian Church's founding means knowing where we come from and how we got here. May our celebrations this year acknowledge those we can name and the millions we cannot name who have worked and sacrificed for religious freedom, for recognition of human rights, for the love and fairness we hold sacred. Together we can build across generations. Together we can renew our hope and faith in life that is yet to unfold. May it be so.